0: What's up guys welcome back to the clinical athlete podcast this is episode 10 if you're not familiar with clinical athlete we're a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes you can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com we also have a clinical athlete forum where clinicians students and coaches network discuss and share ideas and resources related to sports med rehab and performance to join the forum or for a uh, potential listing on the clinical athlete directory Details and applications can be found on the website clinicalathlete.com. This podcast specifically can be found on that same website, also YouTube and iTunes, where you can leave a nice review if the show is helpful for you. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. This is my clinic that you see here if you're watching on YouTube. This is Clinical Athlete Newport. Um, Some housekeeping items before we jump into our special guest today. We've got some events coming up. We've got some clinical athlete weightlifting certifications in Portland and Houston and Southern California. All those details can be found at clinicalathlete.com events. But we also have a webinar coming up on July 10th, the topic of which is knee valgus and the squat, much about nothing. Uh, and that's a question, much about nothing. And, it's, and, and the host of that webinar is physical therapist, Sam Spinelli, who happens to be joining me on the show today. What's up, Sam? Hey Quinn, how's it going? It's going well, man. I'm really excited to have you on. Can you tell our six listeners a little bit about yourself? What set you on the path to reach the pinnacle of your career today, which is being featured on the Clinical Athlete podcast?
1: Uh, So yeah, I'm Sam Spinelli, physical therapist in Northern California, opposing Quinn and uh, competitive strength athletes, uh, mediocre numbers at best for weightlifting, powerlifting, and then, uh, basically, reaching the pinnacle of my career right now. I've been a clinical athlete forum member as a student for almost three years, and now, as a practicing clinician,
0: I'm coming on as a uh, webinar host. So I'm pretty excited for it. And I'll say too, you know, Sam and I, I've, I've, I met you in person in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, at the CWC, and that was a year and a half ago, almost. It was last February, 2017, but. You had been an integral part of the Clinical Athlete Forum as a student ambassador long before that. And Sam was one of the guys who was keep it was kind of just keeping the student forum conversations going. You know, he was he was testing some of the students in there. Sometimes some of the forum members can be a little shy at first. Like I get it totally, especially as a student. You read some of those threads and you're like, oh my goodness, what do I, you know, what am I doing here? And so they're just flies on the wall, which is fine. But you know, Sam was really good about involving a lot of the students and and it was it's just been uh invaluable for us so we're getting them on and and you know your content is great you're you're doing really really good things on social media and it was a no-brainer for us to just to do this webinar hopefully many more in the future and then to get you on the show the topic is an interesting one and i think it's It's one of those that's been like the ongoing debate in, in rehab world and PT land and movement land, knee valgus. What is valgus? What is knee valgus? Somebody says that word. What does that mean? So the
1: most basic way to think of it, or the average person has like basically no anatomical knowledge is inward tracking of the knees. There's all this, specific terms that are thrown around with it about the angulation of distal segments and blah, 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 blah. But for most people, when you're looking at it, if you see someone where their knees track inwards in relation to their feet, that's going to be in essence valgus.
0: And are we talking about, is it a combination of movements? Are we looking at the hip or are we looking at the knee, the foot, yeah, so if we get more into it, then there's some
1: specifics. Typically, the general motion is considered to be at the knee, where we see a change in relation of the femur on the tibia. It is a it's, the, the true term is an outward angulation of the distal tibia. So in essence, it's supposed to be that the femur stays in place, and then the tibia goes in relation to the center line. And then there's a few different considerations that get thrown with, or grouped with it, where we have some rotation that can change. So for instance, having um, femoral internal rotation with tibial external rotation, that's a common one that's grouped with it, but not technically by the traditional terminology.
0: And there's several references that we can look at to kind of explain this. One of, uh, before I get into that, why the big fuss about valgus? You know, let's talk about mechanisms of injury first because I think that's where the doesn't matter conversation comes into play. So is valgus a mechanism for injury? Is it, does it increase risk? Is it a sure thing? Like where are we at with that?
1: So one of the problems that arises like in the general discussion of the topic is what's the context which we're talking yeah. And we, I, I think that a lot of the information that's out there is um, been taken from other sporting demands, such as like football, soccer, volleyball, any of these other sports that are a little bit more dynamic and different than traditional weightlifting, powerlifting, squatting of any kind. And when we look at those, there's different types of presentation with valgus. And we see a lot of the literature that comes out in the sports showing that valgus has a distinct mechanism of injury within those demands. In sports like um, football, where we see an individual goes to take a cut, and then they have a very strong valgus moment, there is a high chance for something like an ACL injury to occur, um, maybe an MCL or some other damage to the knee. Whereas um, in other contexts, that might not stand as such a strong claim. And that's one of the things that we explore within the webinar.
0: Are we looking at unilateral versus bilateral movements? Is it is somebody landing on one leg or cutting off one leg more at risk or more susceptible to valgus being an injury mechanism as opposed to in a squat?
1: It's, it's actually pretty interesting because when you start to dig into the literature on it, like that's a pretty interesting question. And when you just watch videos of people having ACL tears, if... Someone can find a video where they see someone land with two feet and tear their ACL. Please send me that video because I've been trying to track one down and uh, it doesn't really seem to occur very often. And, and it's, it's actually so uncommon that the literature basically doesn't have uh, almost any occurrence within it. Almost all of the times when an ACL or some sort of damage occurs to the knee and valgus is considered to be one of the mechanisms it's with a single foot contact of some kind, whether it be a cut, a land from a jump. Um, well, and these are all non-contact obviously for this. So it doesn't really seem to be a bilateral stance thing that's happening as significant
0: are in there, other sports. Right. So are there, are we queuing? Well, obviously we have to land on one leg sometimes or, or cut off one leg, are we are we looking at certain ways to mitigate risk in regards to cueing movement or having the athlete train certain patterns a certain way to reduce their risk? Or maybe valgus is, no, is not a problem at, in certain positions versus others? So in the context of something like a, a squat or
1: a deadlift pull, snatch, clean, any of those kinds of things that we would generally look at, it's probably going to be beneficial to try to get the person to being a little bit more straight line position of hip, knee and ankle and generally having the knee track in line with the toes. So I think that using some sort of understanding with the athlete, I don't know if it necessarily needs to be like a knees out cue or what, or just having a simple conversation with them to give them the idea of what they should do and then having them practice it under different uh, contexts, such as, you know, tempo squatting, um, working on it with, other things we can talk about afterwards, but for most people, I don't think that it's going to be the best position, and most people will be able to get some ability to train out of it over time.
0: And there's some, there was an interesting study in 2014. It was, they were looking at cadavers, mm-hmm. but it was the title of the study is Preferential Loading of the ACL Compared with the MCL During Landing. Uh, a novel in sim approach yields the multiplayer mechanism of dynamic valgus during ACL injuries. Long title, it's open access. Essentially, what they found was it's a, it's a combination of movements. Kind of what, what you were talking about. It's not, it's not any one biomechanical mechanism as in uh, internal rotation of the tibia, that's it. Or anterior shear of the tibia, that's it. But what they did find... Because it was a combination of anterior tibial shear force, knee abduction, which is basically the tibia going outwards while the femur stays fixed, and internal tibial rotation moments. When those things happen simultaneously, then you had increased uh, tension or increased Hmm. strain on the ACL. But the kickers are those moments happen in milliseconds. Mm -hmm. Like the the first four hundredths of a second is when those things are going to happen. Like you tear yourself, boom, like that you know, preventing that or thinking about that is, is very difficult to do. And the other kicker was it, most of the, in the simulations, the tears happened at knee flexion of 25 degrees or less. And if you measure that and somebody's standing up and you have, and you go knee them and have them bend their knee to 25 degrees, it looks damn near straight. Yeah, totally. So, you know, one, do you, do you feel that with that, it's like, okay, we're not going to be able to, coach them out of those four milliseconds potentially. But if we just look at knee flexion as a mechanism, uh, yeah. landing with a with a deeper knee flexion angle or cutting with a deeper <laughs> knee flexion angle off one leg, is that something that we can look at as a coaching cue? I think
1: that like, if this is under context of general sports and not specifically with the squat, then absolutely. Because if you look at most individuals and their ability to land, most are going to be able to absorb the force better by going into a slight more hip dominant position, which will require them to go into greater than the 30 degrees of knee flexion, where basically as soon as we get below that, the ACL is taking off tension. So I think that one of the easiest things to do is just start to encourage more
0: knee flexion. So what about in the the squat itself? If the squat is a knee flexion exercise, is the ACL specifically being strained in the squat or are we looking at the acl is actually slacked in the bottom of the squat we're looking at other structures you know where's that line in regards to valgus and the squat and that's where it gets a little bit more complicated because in comparison to those other groups where we have like that
1: sort of distinct mechanism of injury and specific parameters within the structures that are going to be involved we don't necessarily have that with the squat or i guess the sports that involve the squat When we are looking at it, we see valgus can come in, I generalize it as kind of two main categories, either the uncontrolled valgus, where individuals start to collapse inwards as soon as they begin squatting, at eccentric motion. Typically, we see this more with novices, where they don't have a lot of experience with the movement, and that's probably where we may pose some risk to ACLs and some other things. That's that person that, as soon as they break at the hips or knees, they start to drop inwards. Whereas I don't think that's generally when we're talking about the topic, that's not what most people are thinking. Generally we're more having that picture of someone like Maddie Rogers or someone else at a high level stage where they hit the hole, they look fine. As soon as they start to up then the knees fall inwards, they have that valgus twitch for a second and it pops back out as they break usually around 90 degrees of knee flexion. And in that situation, that's where we have a little bit more gray zone of what could possibly be getting damaged because, in that position, we know the ACL is pretty much on slack. Um, the MCL is also going to be on slack in that position. So in order to damage it, you'd have to have some very severe amounts of their, uh, knee adduction where they're basically going to have to have their knees hit or they're going to have to have some very severe internal rotation of their tibia or, uh, their femur, which again, we don't see that occur almost ever. And then, uh, Outside of those, like the MCL, or, uh, MCL and ACL, those are pretty much the predominant ones we would think. There's some argument individuals are making about potentially having some stress to the patellar tendon because we're having some rotation occur, but there's actually basically no papers discussing that. So it's a little bit harder and really much more theoretical Um but I think that for any situation where it's related to the patellar tendon or the patellar femoral joint in general, like uh, patellar femoral pain syndrome, that's going to be more of just a general tissue adaptation problem than it is specifically
0: valgus as a general mechanism. Yeah, I would say if we're worried about putting load on the patellar tendon, we probably shouldn't squat or walk or, or go <laughs> up and down stairs. Exactly. Are you, would you say that it's it's a tough question to answer, but when are you correcting somebody who's who you visually see their knees collapsing in when they drive out of the bottom of a squat? Are you you taking a step back and saying, okay, just because I see this doesn't necessarily mean it's a problem? What are you taking into into context in those situations?
1: So at least for myself, from a coaching standpoint, I'm going to consider number one, the load relative to their abilities. So if that person is doing this, um, for instance, let's say we have an athlete that can clean a hundred kilos and they're doing it this with 40 kilos, then that's probably not a situation that I'm going to be comfortable with. And I think that was something to just start to work on. Whereas if we see this starting to happen at higher percentages, I don't think that I'm going to be able to easily coach them out of it as it's going to be likely something that they're utilizing to stand up. Um, whereas again, if we see that individual who is, let's say a power lifter and they're squatting and they're just starting and they have that valgus occur right upon the eccentric portion, that's again, something I'm going to try to coach them out of and try and work on. And that's going to be really more a matter of, do they have any motor control or just skill acquisition with the actual demand of the, of what they're doing? And then I think when we're looking at more of the high-level athletes who is having excessive knee valgus, which is honestly pretty hard to uh, define as we don't really have specific context. Like I can't say someone has mild, moderate, or severe valgus. I don't think there's any literature on that specific scale. But upon just my my subjective eye of it, if I see someone that's having a, a pretty strong collapse inwards more than they're used to, that's where I might consider what is a programming looking like, things like that. I, I don't know if I can specifically say like, oh, it's their weak glute medius or something. I, I think it's probably, you know, if they're having excessive knee valgus under a situation where they would normally not, then it's probably
0: something to consider in other factors. Would you say that we can alter it? Is that a, a movement or a position that we, that we can even change, you know, for a long, from a long-term habit standpoint? And if so, how do we do that? Yeah, again, I think from a habit
1: standpoint, it's under that last situation where it's, um, like if we look at people that are at very high levels of the sports of powerlifting or weight, specifically weightlifting, we'll say we still see this occur. And I don't think that we can necessarily train out of that. I don't think that there's any literature really supporting that. There's been a few studies that have looked at trying to change that. And interestingly, like the, the support is quite against it. Um, I know that one of the strong things that people will talk about when working with, whether it be beginners or more advanced individuals, is trying to use a band around the knees. And there's been two specific studies that have looked at this, both showing that there wasn't benefit for its usage from the aspect of changing knee width index or the relation of how close the knees are to each other, um, in one act, as the individual went up in weight, their knees actually collapsed more. So it was, they did show some benefit for a very low load, but as soon as you started to challenge the individual, then it didn't show benefit for that.
0: Even with the band, they still collapsed more? They collapsed more, yeah. yeah. So it was like, not only were they getting pummeled by the the external load, but then the band was just adding more, kind of a, almost a cumulative effect. Those two, Sam actually sent me these two studies for the listeners, one of which is, and we'll put this in the show notes, the influence of resistance bands on the frontal plane, knee mechanics during body weight squat and vertical jump movements. And the second one is, uh, effects of a band loop on lower extremity muscle activity and kinematics during the barbell squat. So to It'll me, I ac- think, huh, what's that? That one's open access. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's the one where, where I think that you were just describing that their knees actually collapse more with the band. Yeah. So, and you make a good point with the study is with lighter loads it was a, a cue to have them feel a certain position. But then when you when you stress the, the organism enough, it reverts back to its habits, and it's just simply sometimes you know, you may just say, if it's a position that changes at a certain threshold of intensity, would you simplify it and just say, you know what? That person is simply just not strong enough to move the way that we have deemed safe or appropriate or me as a coach, this is, this is what I'm deeming as acceptable positioning and patterning. You hit that intensity threshold. You're simply not strong enough as opposed to weak glute medius or, you know, this, or dysfunctional that something like that. Is that, what type of lens do you put on those situations?
1: I basically try to use exactly that of where's the individual in the context of their training is this a person who is close to a competition and we're trying to get them to maximally perform at it and they're not experiencing any symptoms with um, any form of knee valgus, then I'm probably not going to freak out and say that we need to restrict their volume or their intensity with it. Whereas in contrast, if this is someone who's further away and they're showing more valgus than I'm comfortable with, then we're going to try to lower down the intensity, gain more control with it. Probably train a, uh, change a few parameters in the way that they're doing things, maybe add in some tempo work, um, try to manipulate things in that way. Or in the same situation, if this is someone who is symptomatic with knee valgus for whatever means, then we'll be working on those things specifically as well, trying to help address and just have
0: some symptom modification of working in different positions. Do you have any concern or are you cognizant of the words that you choose when you're coaching and cueing the athlete? Like, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm actually
1: like pretty like uh, pretty on point with this. This is actually something I think I, I don't know if I originally got this from you, but I definitely have been very vocal with anyone that I work with. Uh, Cause I, I help coach coaches mostly now. And when I work with a lot of them, it's about changing the verbiage that we use with athletes. And it's a big one that I've tried to work away from is whether it be specifically saying, You know, I want you to work into these positions to help improve your lift or something like that, or just trying to change the parameters of what they're doing so that they can just learn it themselves. For instance, like if I'm trying to have someone squat in a more knees forward position and they're a bit more, uh, newer to the movements, I might put something in front of their knees for them to have as, uh, something to try and make contact with and give them feedback so that I don't have to even say anything. But I try to very shy away from any sort of verbiage of like, you will hurt yourself if you do this, or this is going to make your knee explode, and you're going to get an Ebola if you keep doing this. Anything of that nature. I just think it's completely
0: unwarranted, and it's just going to do damage to the individual. They're going to get an Ebola no matter what. That's just a (laughs) given. That's just a given. Yeah, I I think it, it makes perfect sense. I would say that the way that I... Seem to have framed things over the last several years is I don't necessarily coach the movements any differently. And let's see if you agree with this. But like the end result of the movement and the pattern is I still have a picture of what I perceive as a quote unquote optimal squat or one that's going to be sustainable with, with increased load and stress over time. But it's definitely, I have definitely changed the way that I deliver what I want. And it sounds like that's what you're describing as well and maybe even spinning things from more of a performance standpoint as opposed to an injury mechanism standpoint like if you see that what you would deem as valgus or inward collapsing of the knees to the point where you want to intervene instead of saying you know keep you gotta push your knee out or you're gonna hurt yourself you say hey why don't you put your you know keep your knee in this position or try to try to stack your joints this way because you can put more force into the floor you're stronger that way that you know, you spin it from a performance perspective instead of that fear mongering position. Is that kind of what you're describing? Yeah, absolutely. And so, to kind of summarize so far, what we it seems like this unilateral. If we're talking about field sport athletes, the the notion of valgus. Valgus is more of an umbrella term to describe a combination of subtle movements that are happening at the the femur and tibia intersection there kind of a combination of, of different type of moments and they happen very quickly and it's it's it can be very difficult to try to control that in the moment but with some type of single leg jump hop land cut we can a minimum cue maybe a deeper knee flexion angle from there just get them stronger in general to hope that that reduces their risk or they're they're more tolerant and be able to more be more resilient to load in general Mm -hmm. with the squad it sounds like it's a lot more of a gray area and it's a lot more of context specific whether you're going to intervene or not would you would you say what are some thresholds or triggers or maybe some guidelines that you would go to first so if you see somebody who's knees are collapsing at they weren't collapsing at 40 kilos or 40% of their one rep max, but they do at 80% of their one rep max. What is your kind of approach? What are you changing or intervening on? Um,
1: well, I, on my experience with the athletes and also our relationship, generally I'm not going to do too much queuing, like in the set itself. And instead I'll wait till afterwards have an athlete doing any sort of filming or something like that so that they can also have a visual observation. I think a lot of people are able to learn and get a better understanding when they have a visual feedback. And then if they either, if they can, then great, let's keep going forward. If they can't, then do we need to change something? Is this something where we need to pull back and wait? Do we need to change to different exercise? And are they symptomatic with it? For me, that's a huge one if this is someone who's able to do this and they've had lots of experience with it and their tissue's tolerable to it and able to handle it, then that's where it is a gray zone. It's, it's really difficult because you don't know. Like right now, we don't see it necessarily as this um, for sure mechanism of injury. And, but we also don't have it as it's better to be there. And so it's difficult to say, like, I should coach everyone out of it. So it's, it's really difficult in the fact that I'm working mostly right now. I work with a lot of, let's say higher level athletes where I am comfortable with them having some degree of knee valgus. Whereas for most of the time, if I am working with a novice or an intermediate athlete, I'm trying to coach them a lot more out of it. And that's where we're doing a lot more work where they're going to be changing stuff to reduce their ability to have knee valgus occur easily. So a lot of the times that'll be more demands of tempo squatting, um, low weight weightlifting, and building it up a lot more volume in those ways so that hopefully when we keep pushing the envelope, then they don't have it show
0: up as much. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And I, I think that we overcomplicate this matter a lot. For me, I try to simplify things as best I can. If it's occurring at a certain, I'm all about thresholds, this, this concept of threshold. If it's occurring occurring at a certain threshold of intensity, let's just go lighter. If I wasn't seeing that at lighter loads and I've all, you know, we back up to deeming that it's a problem cause you've touched on this yes. several times. Like it may not be You their, mm-hmm. their knees just may be moving a little bit. And then it's kind of the whole butt wing conversation where our eyes can trick ourselves into thinking that there's a problem just cause we see movement happen. So we've mm-hmm. got to establish that number one, it's either affecting performance or number two, they're sensitized to the position in general. And then a change in position desensitizes the system symptoms we have to establish that as well but you know if it's as simple as a, an intensity threshold that it happens in it's real easy just go lighter and it doesn't have to be crazy right would you agree that like sometimes it's not a big change you know maybe a 10 percent reduction in intensity or something like that or if it's back or front squat just slow the tempo down a little bit and they can control positions a little bit better do you find that that's something that can be done
1: I do that is the ideal situation. I don't know if uh, you said it's simple, but it's not necessarily that easy.
0: Yeah.
1: Convincing someone that they should go lighter is not um, always the easiest thing, especially if that person does that lift and we see it and deem it as having that knee valgus that we want to change, but they
0: felt it was easy. Then that's, that's a hard situation sometimes. But now we're back. And that's what I see a lot. Of- well, I was going to say, now we're back to even, do we even need to change it in that context? Yeah. I feel like you're a big guy, though. You're big and strong. If you if you're gonna tell walk up to somebody and be like, "Listen, you need to do do this," they'll listen to you. They're not gonna listen to me. It's a lot harder for me. Wait, actually, before right before we started recording, one of our weightlifters. It's so funny. Came in and he was like, "Should I be worried about this?" And he showed me a picture. He had just done a triple, like a one rep or three rep max triple snatch, and his picture was from the. Uh, his knees and it was showing me like his knees his toes were way like pointed way out like 75 degrees and his both yeah. his knees were in and he was like should i be concerned and i was like well do you do you do that every time i know i know him but i'm just like you know kind of yeah. questioning him towards the the end answer which is no i'm not worried about it you shouldn't be either but it was do you do it every time and he was like no it was a three rep max it was number it was the third rep of my three rep max snatch yeah. and i was like all right you know stuff happens you're have been prepared for that moment now is he is he increasing risk of something maybe but like you said yeah when we're talking about a squat it's a lot more gray in that regard so like i think in those contexts it would be easy to say that perhaps we draw a line in intensity. Like if you're a coach or clinician, you're still kind of iffy about that position. Like let's, I'm not saying we want people in valgus. I don't think that's what you're saying either, Sam. Of course not, right? But maybe we can start to ask the question of, well, let's find our our threshold of position. So if, if we want them in a certain position, then the answer is, their question is not, can I move the weight from point A to point B, but can I move the weight from point A to point B within the position's, that I have deemed more optimal. Do you find having that conversation with athletes in the gym, like where you're like, you know, this is, we'll call this one rep max for you to be able to move weight from point A to point B, but let's find that positional threshold where things start Mm -hmm. to break down from a technique standpoint. And then that's where we get our work in.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's actually the ideal conversation to have as often as possible, whether it be training or rehab, I think that that conversation is very underutilized from a coaching perspective.
0: Are there, we go back to some of these statistics, like base rates of injuries involving the squat, and we talk about acute traumatic injuries. I think we think about valgus, we think about those traumatic injuries, ACL, MCL, you know, meniscus, these types of things. What have you seen in the data to speak on these mechanisms of injury in specifically in the weightlifting or barbell population?
1: There's a lot of interesting data out there on, um, I guess, the incidence and prevalence within powerlifting and weightlifting. So that's basically where we're going to be able to draw our data from if it's in relation to squatting. I don't think we really have a ton of studies examining just average people doing squats. So it's going to generally come from those. And there's one study done where they uh, took basically all of the information from the uh, Olympic Training Center when it still existed back in Colorado. And it was across six years time span. Every injury, uh, that was reported for acute, chronic, recurring. Um, I don't remember all the different classifications they had. Uh, they categorized them by joints and the knee is actually the second most common joint injured by weightlifters. But into the knee, there was almost zero days of training missed. And in most cases, it was classified as knee tendinitis. I think it was like 90% of knee injuries were knee tendinitis. So if you were to remove that 93%, assuming that knee valgus isn't the issue there, um, and it looks at the 7%, the other ones, there's actually like two cases where the they were included, but it was like a car accident that happened. And a few other situations where they're like freak accidents that don't really get included. So that. I think it's gonna be challenging to point to Valgus as like the primary issue. And I think that we have a lot of information where we could discuss tendinitis. We should probably call it but um in a different confine. You should probably also watch the previous webinar from Jason um Jason Eure. He does a great job discussing that. Um there's another one that also looked at uh weightlifters and powerlifters in Sweden. So when we look at countries like Sweden, and Norway, where powerlifting and weightlifting are very big sports, and they also are socialized, and so basically they can just tell the athletes that they have to do stuff, like participate in research studies, um, they're able to get a lot of really cool data. And one of the ones that they did was across 1995 and 2000, they, um, they had the athletes uh, basically keep track of all the number of lifts that were performed on a weekly basis, and they also had them keep track of any sort of injuries that occurred, and they compared those results between both uh, weightlifting and powerlifting. This was done under the 50 best weightlifters in the country and 50 best powerlifters in the country. And then they also had a control group where they did the 50, uh, 50 individuals that were just recreational lifters. They tried to have somewhat of a matched number of sets and reps that were done. So like total volume, and they compared the amount of uh, injuries that occurred. And the knee was pretty small. Like the total number of injuries that occurred across all uh, all weightlifting and powerlifting in general was around like three point three injuries per thousand hours of training. Which, for anyone that's seen the statistics on other sports, like that is incredibly low. But then within that, the knee, I think in that one was the third most injured joint. I think it was behind low back and shoulder. Am I, can you hear me okay? Yeah, there's, uh sounded like a train went by. But...
0: <laughs> it was a plane. Oh, <laughs> um, That's my experience with the data as well. Every time I see a list of injuries, like sport, they list by sport. If barbell sports or weightlifting <laughs> is even a part of the list, it's at the very, very bottom. You've got like soccer and basketball and, and American football and all those things and tennis, all these repetitive uh you know, sports are at the very top of the list. And when you mention something like tenonitis or tenonopathy, well, we haven't established that valgus is even a mechanism for those types of things anyway. Just like you said, so it's it's one of these things, these these notions that have just kind of been ingrained where we have these studies showing that this umbrella term of valgus can be a, a mechanism in certain instances, and then what we do is we paint this broad this broad uh, stroke across all movements. And all mm-hmm. different sporting modalities and it sounds like that's kind of what ha- what's happened with the squat and it just doesn't necessarily seem like it's it, it holds up as well as as a mechanism of injury so it sounds like it always just kind of falls back to context performance and are they sensitized to a specific position and all things that we can try to manipulate
1: yeah absolutely I think those are the primary things to manipulate. And- Pretty much any condition.
0: I've heard a, a few hypotheses, and I'm not even going to call them theories because these aren't. There's nothing. There's no data, and, and there's no real support for them. Why high-level athletes, or even even uh, intermediate, you know, experienced lifters, while their why their bodies utilize a strategy like inward travel of the knee? Because I know coaches in both the sport of powerlifting and weightlifting who actually teach. A subtle inward motion of the knees. I've seen some of the uh, some Chinese national coaches cue or or kind of explain the position as not bad, but a normal part of the position. And mm-hmm. I know a few high high level powerlifters as well. Now, of course, high experienced coaches and great lifters are are they're just kind of speaking from experience. So anecdote. The, the sum of anecdote is still anecdote, right? So we're just taking that with a grain of salt. But the, the theory, I've heard a few. One is that at the bottom of the squat, an inward tracking of the knees puts a almost an impulse or puts a, a quick stretch on the glutes and 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 creates some type of like spring effect to where you see their knees dive in and they pop out of the bottom of the squat and then they drive out again. I'm not, I don't know about that. Another is that their body almost has a protective mechanism. The adductors kick in as almost a way to kind of lock in the hips or create some type of of stiffness. Um, I don't know about that one either. The third one that makes more sense to me intuitively, I don't really know why, just kind of like I I can get down with this one a little bit more, is that the body is creating a purposeful impingement of the hip joints meaning that there's a, it's trying to create form closure. It's literally trying to clank the bones together to create a shelf. Impingement's not a bad thing in this context. It just means that, that bones are approximating. So the body at the very bottom of a squat, which is already impinging the hip joints, by the way, you impinge your hip joints every time you squat people, but creating this fader position, essentially this flexion, adduction, internal rotation moment where it creates a a bone-on-bone platform for the athlete to be able to stand up in, and then once they're out of that deep impinged position, then they can the neuromuscular system can kick in, and then you see the knees drive out, and knees are back over the feet, and they're you know pushing into the floor. Do you have you seen any data on any of those hypotheses, or or no, or have any other hypotheses that explain why you see that movement with so many lifters?
1: So. It's actually funny, like, I was trying to find legitimate evidence to support some of these things, and outside of, like, just straight-up anatomy studies where they, you know, point out the fiber positions of the glutes and possibilities of that stuff, like, I don't think there's any research on any of that. Um, Again, like, the one comment that I'll add on to that adductor one, I think that does Add a little bit of support to it is the um, origin and insertion relationship. It acts as a hip extensor and is a pretty huge one. So when it, you combine all of its actions of hip extension, hip adduction, and hip internal rotation, it's going to create some degree of valgus. So it's hard. And I think that it's something that we're not going to have any evidence on for a while because I don't know how we'd even study that to like legitimately track something like that. I think that you could probably put EMGs on uh, your adductors and your glutes and see that EMG changes, but I don't know if that necessarily tells you a ton inherently.
0: Yeah. I think, I think you'd have to go there uh, with a surface EMG. There would seemingly be so much noise with an act. Like if you're, you're testing somebody in a clean or something like that, or a snatch, there's a lot going on there. You'd almost need needles. Yeah, and even within
1: uh, EMG stuff, like with the noise comment, when I was researching the, that, the two studies that, that we talked about with the knee width index and the bands, like for instance, in the one study, when that's open access, they showed that um, individuals that had the band on and they were novices because they had two groups, uh, experienced lifters and novices, and the novices with the band on doing like the, th- they had them do a three rep max, and the, I think it was their left vastus lateralis increased when they had the band on and their right vastus lateralis decreased. But then in the experience lifters, it was reversed their right vastus lateralis. And it was statistically significant too. And it's, it, it has to be just like this random noise because yeah, it doesn't make any sense that why the right in experienced lifters,
0: but left in novice or, yeah. So we're we're kind of back to the whole con- context thing, you know. It's this. It's like almost similar to the cervical extension piece when somebody's driving out of the bottom of a squat. You know, why we can almost naturally kind of drive our head into extension, and you'll hear the narratives. Oh, it's, you know, it's driving extensor tone, or it's doing this thing, or it's a, or it's a dysfunction. You want to fix it, but it seems like it's one of those just reflexive patterns. Yeah. And I've seen it to a point. I actually have a video of one of the world champion junior. Uh, junior world champions performing this like bilateral knees are caving in like crazy amounts, but she's a world champion and she, and she stands up no problem. And then she smokes a jerk, but I've also, we have plenty of lifters here behind me that you probably hear that are not junior world champions. Uh, Most lifters that you'll encounter are not nearly at that level or most of them are novice where they get stuck in that position that like knees way in position and they literally get stuck there and they can't stand up anymore. And they're, it just seems like that valgus is a natural like, I don't even want to say protection, but it's just a strategy. Your body's trying to find something to perform the task. All, all your brain and nervous system knows is that you're trying to do this thing. Like it, You want to stand up with this, this weight on your back and it's, so it's going to try to put you in a position and and that it feels like it can leverage whatever it needs to leverage. It's not worrying about optimal biomechanics or these types of things and you know we're going to sound like broken records here but if it just comes down to they are simply not strong enough to perform the task or it's simply too much stress in the moment then that's just something as clinicians and strength and conditioning coaches that we can have control over the dosage of the stressor mm-hmm. i see it do you see it with fatigue as well like higher reps or maybe for with crossfitters in a metcon positions start to to break down and change a little bit over the course of these things as like, not just load on the bar, but fatigue. Even within the accumulation
1: load throughout a block of training where an individual just has increased load across, maybe it's their third week of a block and the volume has been increased uh, significantly for them. They're just not, they're going into some sort of mechanism just to kind of get through it in a way. And I think it, in that situation, if I'm the coach, I'm probably going to choose to change the program currently. I think it's probably just overloading their ability to stick to what I want, at least. Um, yeah. So I've seen that actually in a few different confines of general programming. So total workload done in a period of time. Um, later on in sessions for a weightlifter, such as, you know, they're on their sixth set of cleans. And then in Metcons with weight, if you watch the CrossFit games, you can actually notice this as well, that as the days go on. So if they're on like their fourth or fifth day of the games, you see a significant increase in a lot of things like that.
0: Right. And so perhaps with all, with everything that you've said, with our queuing, like the bands and all these things, kind of being up in the air in regards to their long-term effectiveness at changing motor patterns it almost seems like trying to constantly cue that position in the moment is a fool's game like if you're not if you're not if you're not altering the stressor in some capacity so that they can actually perform the task the way that you've established the that you want them to perform it it's just like Mm -hmm. somebody who's who's just biting their nails you just keep smacking their hand smacking their hand but it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. going to change anything i think i'm hoping and i think that we're all be a little bit more clear after your webinar. Hopefully. Which I'm super excited about these. So, and just to give people more information on that, it's it's coming up on July 10th, and this is the topic, and it's it's going to be uh, Sam's presentation, kind of going through these things and more. And you can register at clinicalathlete.com/events, and if you can't make the July 10th date. Don't fret because the beauty of the internet is such that we can send you the recording. So everybody who, re- who registers for the webinar gets sent the recording a few days after the show. Um, so you'll have that for reference. You'll be able to watch it over and over and over again. You'll be able to see all the references that Sam cites in there and uh, the ones that we talked about today and more in that presentation. So that will be uh, very, very useful for the coach and the clinician Sam, anything else on the topic that you feel we've missed or touched or haven't touched on? Uh, I think anything we didn't will get covered in the webinar and people should sign up for it. But Sam, where can people get in touch with you? Where can they find out more about you?
1: Uh, I run an Instagram channel called The Strength Therapist. I pretty much mostly use that. I've got a Facebook channel as well. And then uh, if you're really interested to talk more, you can email me at thestrengththerapist@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can message me on Facebook, whatever you feel comfortable with.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show, Sam. We really appreciate it and we're excited for the webinar. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody.